Today's podcast is sponsored by David M. Hosmer Law Office, which is celebrating David's 30th year practicing law. You may not need a lawyer, but when you do, you need an excellent one. Contact him at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. In our first few episodes, we discussed the regular military and South Dakota's 147th field artillery prior to the war. Today, we'll present the stories of three men who survived the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. By the end of November of 1941, General MacArthur was leading the Pacific forces, the Marines in China had been ordered to the Philippines, and South Dakota's 147th Field Artillery was on its way as well. American leaders focused on the Philippines. The Japanese focused on Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian territories. During the summer of 1941, sonar pings aboard Navy ships suggested that American ships were in close proximity to foreign submarines. Military leaders responded by requiring maneuvers and placing the entire Pacific fleet, quote, under condition two, unquote. According to Werner Clem, this meant heightened readiness. He was aboard the USS Dobbin, a destroyer tender which provided maintenance support to destroyers. All of its guns, manned 24 hours a day, were ready to fire. American intelligence, which monitored Japanese radio communications, lost the Japanese fleet after the 17th of November. The Dobbin went on maneuvers, and after it returned on the 1st of December, Condition 2 was dropped. According to Werner, quote, everyone went back to holiday routine, unquote. According to Werner, Friday the 5th of December was field day at Pearl Harbor, when all the ships were scrubbed down in anticipation of the captain's Saturday morning inspection. Werner had his porthole open to look around the harbor. Atop the battleships moored to his southwest, he saw men standing at attention along the rail. They were readying to go ashore. It was always a contest to be the first man ashore. No man could leave the ship until the colors, which began at 7.55 a.m., were completed. Most of the battleships had their own band. After playing the Star Spangled Banner and raising the flag, each band member on every ship put away his instrument and ready to leave. Liberty was common on the Sunday following Friday's field day and Saturday's inspections. Oahu was lovely and the weather was pleasant, but it was small. There were only so many times that a sailor could visit Waikiki or walk from one end of the crowded Hotel Street to the other end to see the Army, Navy, YMCA, and Woe Fats Bar. Gene Dwyer described military life at Oahu as pretty lax. Think of the movie From Here to Eternity, he said. Every Wednesday night was off duty for everyone. There were inspections on Saturday morning, and then you could come and go as you pleased on the weekend. You didn't even have to wear a uniform off base. Frank Sinatra simply put on his Aloha shirt and went to town. That's the way things were. Werner Clem came to my attention because of a newspaper article. 
I searched for Pearl Harbor survivors, and he lived in Florida, not far from my father. When my father and I knocked on his door, there was no immediate response. After a few more knocks, a very thin man wearing a Hawaiian shirt opened the door. As he escorted us into his home, I saw photos and newspaper clippings that he had set out in preparation for our interview. It was obvious that he had something to say. Werner Klemm has a strong German accent. His father served in the German military during the Great War, and he talked about it with Werner, which is quite unique. Trench warfare was hell, he said. He vividly recalled a photo of his father's company of 120 men. Eight of them, including his father, were captured approximately two weeks prior to the armistice on the 11th of November, 1918. All of the other men died. His father returned home to Germany in 1920, but as a country without jobs and lots of inflation. Werner was born to Rudolf and Louise Klemm on the 13th of January, 1923 in the old country, the Erzgebirgskreis district, which separates Saxony from Bohemia. Because there were no jobs, Werner's father moved to America in 1926. It took him about one year to raise the $400 to pay for his family to come to America. He proudly declared that the date of our interview, January 10th, was special. It was on that date in 1927 that he arrived at Ellis Island. When his father gained his American citizenship in 1933, so did Werner. Werner's story is the immigrant story. He did not graduate from high school because as the eldest child, he was expected to help raise money for the rest of the family. At 16, he worked as a silk boy, an adult job at a silk mill located in Bloomfield, New Jersey. He was paid 25 cents per hour, which rose to 40 cents to move heavy cases of silk imported from China, Japan, France, and Italy. His factory manufactured women's full fashion hosiery. After deducting union wages, his net pay was $15.36 per week. Of that, $10 paid for room and board, five was sent to his family, and he usually spent the remaining 36 cents purchasing slivers of chocolate. Werner had a bad case of wanderlust and joined the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was run by the Army. The CCC paid young men to work on public projects. Werner was sent to Montana. His pay increased to $30 per month, of which $22 had to be sent back to his family. Of the remaining $8, the cost of haircuts and laundry was about $6.75 per month. His sergeant liked to drive to Butte, get drunk at the local honky-tonks, and get into fights. That same sergeant took out his World War I blanket, flipped it, and the men rolled the bones. In a couple hours, the sergeant usually cleaned everyone else out of their pay. Werner was unsatisfied with the Montana temperatures. When he saw a sign announcing the Navy had dropped its age limit to 17 years of age, he thought it might be a good way to get out of Montana. He immediately started to hike the 32 miles to Butte. The Navy made it difficult to enlist because it lacked funding, but his enlistment was accepted in early 1940. When he left Butte by train, it was 25 degrees below zero. He was still wearing his woolen long handles when he woke to a view of fragrant and tantalizing orange trees in San Diego. The Navy advanced him $5, which he promptly used to purchase tobacco. And while he reported to wait for naval basic training, a woman on the pier showed him how to roll a cigarette with one hand. He was soon headed to Hawaii, which he called heaven. Another man at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 was Robert Burl Titterington, who had enlisted in the Navy on the 10th of April in 1941. According to his mother, it was his brother Everett's great desire for Bob to join him in Hawaii. 
Everett had enlisted in the Navy on the 15th of December, 1939. Maynard and Pearl Titterington of Moberly, Iowa, had two daughters and three sons. Robert was born on the 27th of August of 1923. Maynard died of a heart attack when Bob was just two years old. This meant that his mother was responsible for raising five children. It must have been very difficult. Perhaps the hard times persuaded both Bob and his older brother, Everett, to join the Navy. Bob's ship sailed past Everett's ship at Pearl Harbor on the 2nd of November, 1941, but the ship didn't stop. Tinnington was my first interview, although I didn't know it at the time. Bob repaired shoulder pads at Royal Athletic Company, and I first joined him during the summer of 1986. My grandparents purchased At Dawn We Slept, the wonderful book about Pearl Harbor penned by Gordon Prang. The book drove my curiosity, and my father suggested I talk to Bob. Bob, however, was uncooperative at best. In fact, he was downright angry at me for even broaching the topic with him. I tried several times and received really intense responses to shove off. However, sometime during the summer of 1988, during my third summer of work at Royal Athletic, Bob approached me during our lunch break. We were the only two in the office, and he asked if I was really interested in learning about Pearl Harbor. Yes, I was. He proceeded to unload his tales, which only made me even more curious about Pearl Harbor. I wanted to go there. In the fall of 1939, Eugene Dwyer walked through tall corn. On his hand was a husking hook, and at his side was a wagon where the corn was tossed. The corn was raised in the rolling hills near Wakanda, South Dakota. And if he stood high enough, he could look southward into the Missouri River Valley. The vista was serene, but he wasn't staying. He planned to join the Army Air Corps. He and a friend, Laverne Doty, enlisted on the 16th of January, 1940. Some families had a military lineage which impelled them to enlist, but not Gene. His father had not served during the Great War, and Gene's reason for enlisting was simple. Quote, there wasn't a whole lot else going on at that time, unquote. His brother Robert Jr. had already enlisted in the Navy and probably served aboard the USS Montpelier. Of course, Gene was referring to the effects of the Great Depression. Even though he had a 1938 Wakanda High School diploma, there were few available jobs. Both Gene and his father, Robert, worked for the New Deal agencies, the Work Progress Administration and the National Youth Administration. Both programs paid them to work on public projects or to stay in school. Recovery from the drought in 1936 was slow, and by the end of the 1930s, even farmhand jobs were scarce. Prior to basic training in San Francisco, Gene had never been out of South Dakota. As a 20-year-old, he still felt fond memories of home in the form of Lucille Peterson. He furloughed home in June of 1941, and they married. When asked why he would marry so soon after joining the army, Gene replied with a sheepish grin, quote, I guess we were in love, unquote. It must have been true. 75 years later, they were still together. Gene asked for overseas duty, which meant you get the luck of the draw. You could have been in Hawaii, the Philippines, or the Panama Canal. Gene was stationed at Hickam Field, abutting Pearl Harbor, which was a very long way from the cornfields of South Dakota. Back at Wakanda High School, Miss Ross taught Gene to type, which was very fortunate. Men who could type were in high demand in the military. His new job was a clerk typist, which he called nice duty. One of his jobs in the 17th service group was to keep maintenance records on each of the bombers at Hickam Field. Completed in September of 1938, Hickam Field was the principal army airfield in Hawaii and the only one large enough to accommodate the B-17 bomber. The B-17 was the army workhorse and there were 12 at Hickam, along with 33 B-18 bombers and 12 A-20s. Eugene Dwyer came to my attention after a conversation with Skip Graff in Irene, South Dakota. 
Skip was a client and friend. When I asked if he knew any World War II veterans living in Irene, he kindly mentioned Dwyer, who was living in South Dakota at that time. As luck would have it, he lived just one block from my mother. Hickam Field had a huge barracks building that served the entire army base. It had five wings and hundreds of men lived in it, which made it a target for the Japanese who wanted to destroy American planes and pilots. After delivering paperwork to the hospital at approximately 7.55 a.m., Dwyer was walking toward the barracks when a bomb dropped right in the middle of the building. Some men were in bed and others were still in their pajamas. That bomb, dropped by a Val dive bomber, landed in the mess hall and killed 35 men who were eating breakfast. Men screamed for everyone to get out of the building, which was equally fatal. Those men ran into the buzzsaw of strafing planes and metal shards wildly strewn. There was no place to hide. Eugene was bewildered by the chaos. The military was always conducting some type of maneuver. Nearby was Fort Shafter, which had thunderous anti-aircraft batteries. Target sleeves were regularly towed close to Hickam, and for a brief moment, Gene wondered if Shafter's guns had misfired. But those guns were all down that day, he said. Explosions started going off, and the first thing someone thinks of is to find some cover someplace. The first wave had three groupings. Large dive bombers attacked Battleship Row. Val dive bombers attacked the airfields, while Zero fighters did the same. Meanwhile, as Werner Clem stood at attention on the Dobbins deck, quote, I saw these planes coming down over the mountain, fluttering like cards. I don't think anything of it because the Army Air Corps used to practice every once in a while. And then he heard something. There was an explosion on Ford Island. And I still didn't think anything of it. I thought, boy, this is pretty realistic today. They are really hitting the target. He then saw a plane fly across Ford Island located in the center of Pearl Harbor. That first plane that dropped a bomb came over the ship. That bomb blew a hole in a Ford runway. As the plane flew over Dobbin, Werner saw two big red circles on the plane, which he referred to as flaming assholes. The captain of the Dobbin rang up fire and rescue, and Werner immediately acted. He ran to his station, but the captain instantly changed the alarm to general quarters. At general quarters, his duty was to haul ammunition to station number four, which had four three-inch anti-aircraft guns. The Dobbin was near several destroyers, the McDonnell, Phelps, Dewey, Hull, and Warden, located a few hundred feet off the north corner of Ford Island. On the east side of the island were several battleships, the California, Maryland, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Tennessee, Arizona, and Nevada. As the planes flew overhead, the Dobbins crew went about the work of serving the destroyers under its watch. Men hooked up electricity, prepared armaments to fire, stoked up the boilers, and assembled machinery. Amazingly, one destroyer in the Dobbins' nest got underway within 10 minutes of the first attack. While the Dobbins' own battle history doesn't mention it, other ship commanders in the destroyer nest created Dobbins' anti-aircraft fire with splashing a Japanese dive bomber at approximately 8.45 a.m. For the most part, the American defenses fired fruitlessly at strafing planes. 183 Japanese planes attacked during the first wave, and an hour later, 171 more planes attacked. Titterington was indoors when the attacks began. He was scared and stayed there. An officer saw him and suggested that he leave as soon as possible. Bob politely rejected such an idea because it was just too dangerous outside, to which the officer suggested he reconsider. Bob was sitting on a multi-gallon fuel tank which would explode if hit by a bomb, and movie did. Bombs that struck the ground near Dwyer made it shake. The concussion knocked him to the ground. Men ran in all directions and voices screamed out orders and suggestions. It was so chaotic. Pretty frightening at the time, said Dwyer. 
over the years, your memories get kind of vague. I was scared. I don't think anybody would say they weren't. They would be lying. One of the most iconic photos taken during the attack was at Hickam Field, as smoke boiled out of the burning barracks, the American flag still fluttered. As disbelief and surprise were overtaken by anger and fear, a second wave of planes arrived at approximately 8.50 a.m. According to Clem, I thought there were planes in the air all morning, unquote. The Dobbin was well-armed. It had the same armament as a cruiser, 5-inch 51 guns. The barrels were long, and they took four to five men to operate. 5-inch 38 guns, such as those on a destroyer, could be raised up for use as anti-aircraft guns, but the 51s were attached to the deck. They were made for distance bombardment, such as attacking another ship or the shoreline. Nevertheless, the men fired their guns at the planes while Werner hauled ammunition. The 4-inch ammunition was fixed, which meant that the powder charge was in a sack. A projectile lay on top of that inside the aluminum tube. He unscrewed the top and pulled it out. During practice, they saved the canisters. However, with so many shells being fired, everything went over the side of the ship and into the water. Later on, when he was running back and forth, he looked up at the sun above the mountains and its rays across the water. The canisters were bobbing around in the harbor. It looked like a big mound of jewels with the sun hitting him. But if you turned your head to the other side, the ships were blowing up and turning over. Some of the explosions Gene heard were from planes erupting and later from ships in the harbor. No planes from Hickam Field made it aloft. They were strafed and bombed, sighed wire. The Japanese destroyed four B-17s, 12 B-18s, and two A-20s. Two Warhawk fighters from Wheeler Field made it aloft, but both were shot down. According to the action report filed by Commander Hubert Paddock, the captain of the Dobbin, quote, at 9.10, three enemy planes, identified by yellow discs painted on their wings, attacked. They came in low, approaching from the starboard quarter. Three bombs were dropped, resulting in near misses on the starboard quarter, astern, and port quarter. They appeared to be 300-pound bombs. Fragments from these bombs struck the stern of the ship, causing personnel and materiel damage. All personnel casualties were members of the number four three-inch anti-aircraft guns located on the aft end of the boat deck. The personnel of number four AA gun were badly hit. But in spite of this, Coxswain H.A. Simpson, U.S. Navy in charge, reorganized his crew, got them in hand, and continued to fight against planes which approached within gun range." Unquote. This rather formal explanation of what happened is in sharp contrast to what Werner told me that he saw. Quote, I was running down the deck with ammunition. Here comes a guy in a plane with his head over the side. He was so low, I saw the expression on his face. He had his goggles up. I could have thrown potatoes at him. He dropped two bombs. I saw these bombs coming and I didn't know what to do. I dropped the ammunition and I went down to the deck and I held myself up a little so the concussion wouldn't get me. The bomb on my side blew up in the water and all I did was get soaking wet from the water. The one on the other side blew up before it hit and that's the one that killed the gun crew." Unquote. This wasn't easy for Warner to talk about. He was deliberate and certain, ever sure to honor those men by properly identifying them. The three men and his gun crew who were lost were torpedo men's mate, third class J.W. Baker, coxswain Howard F. Carter, and fireman first class Roy Gross. Roy was Werner's best friend. Three bombs struck the USS Oklahoma where Everett Tennington was located at approximately 7.53, 7.55, and 8 a.m. Oil seeped out of her. My memory of everything that day, recalled Dwyer, was of huge dark clouds of smoke, dense smoke, burning petroleum from the decimated ships mixed with burning hangars and planes. 
but the explosions and smoke were not from stored fuel. Hickam's original plan situated underground fuel tanks adjacent to the barracks. Such a map was found within the wreckage of a downed Japanese plane, but the tanks had already been moved. In their place was a baseball diamond. Bombs did explode on the baseball infield, which was very fortunate for the American ships and planes. The third bomb pierced the Oklahoma's hull. As the ship tilted to her port side, more bombs struck her, perhaps as many as five more. At least one struck her keel as she lay sunk in the mud. The ship's crew didn't have any time to reach general quarters. It's likely that Bob Tennington, somewhere on base, regained his senses and immediately thought of his brother, who was aboard the USS Oklahoma. After Werner's gun crew got knocked out, a man named Grant from Missouri asked Werner to join him in a 36-foot motor whaleboat to look for survivors. They jumped into the boat and went south toward the Oklahoma and the Arizona. There was no way of knowing if more Japanese planes would arrive. Quote, that's an awful feeling being in the boat, said Werner. I didn't have anything to shoot back. Men popped up from around the Oklahoma and they rescued a few. Everyone was covered in oil, which burned from Sunday morning until early Friday morning. The skin from some men came right off their arms as they pulled them out of the water. You couldn't tell if they were alive or dead. The smell of cordite, a smokeless propellant used to replace gunpowder, filled the air. Through several inches of steel, desperate survivors could be heard banging away in the capsized Oklahoma. Werner and Grant delivered a load of hoses and torches, which were to be used to cut holes in the bulkhead to save those trapped men. However, this was very dangerous. The schematics of the ship indicated that most of the hull was composed of fuel tanks. A hole was eventually cut into a small hole known as the Lucky Bag, and 32 men were rescued mid-afternoon on the 8th. Fireman First Class Everett Titterington was one of the 429 men from the Oklahoma who died. Everett's name is itched into the walls of the missing at the Honolulu Memorial. The Defense Department, in a press release dated the 14th of May, 2021, disclosed that it had finally located Everett's remains. Bob Titterington told a story about a downed Japanese pilot. His body washed ashore. On his finger was a graduate ring from the University of Southern California. It is true that 29 Japanese planes were destroyed at Pearl Harbor and 29 Japanese were killed, and some of them had lived in the United States prior to the war. James Snow shed some light on this notion that some Japanese Americans served and fought in the Japanese military. After the war ended, Jim was a supply sergeant in a motor pool in Manila. His captain recognized that Jim needed help in the supply room, but no men were available. He told Jim to, quote, go ahead and pick a Jap out over there, unquote. Jim walked to the pen area, which contained about 300 prisoners. According to Jim, I asked, can any of you speak English? One guy held up his hand. He was from California. He said that he went back to Japan to fight for his country. Jim asked him to write down several words in Japanese, and he still has that scrap of paper today. Bob also told the story of a milk truck that tried to leave Hickam Field, and apparently, because there were no deliveries on Sundays, they opened up a machine gun and the driver had killed him. This is an unconfirmed rumor. In the end, however, Bob is the story. He never saw his brother at Pearl, and he confessed that he felt guilt for not being able to help him. It's a sad truth that many men felt this pain. After listening to Bob, I knew more about him and why he was the way he was. Everett was gone and a part of him was taken with him too. Bob married Independence Morton on the 28th of August, 1946. They raised one son, Brett. For many years, Bob operated a jewelry store and pawn shop. He died in 1989 at the age of 65. Clem and Grant, who were in a boat bobbing up and down in the harbor, heard there was coffee and sandwiches at Hickam Field. 
As he walked up the hill from Mary Point in the southeast lock, Werner saw a large building. Someone had painted the names of several ships on a hangar, West Virginia, Oklahoma, California, Arizona. Each of the men next to the building had been given a blanket and they huddled under the name of their ship. They were real miserable looking, he said. There were so few people underneath the Arizona, moaned Clem. 1177 men died aboard the Arizona. For most of the day, my memory was pretty vague, confessed Dwyer. This is not a surprise. Many men at Pearl Harbor were shocked. Toward evening, everything shut down at Pearl. They blacked out everything. They were still concerned at that time that an invasion may occur. That was a big concern. The only light came from the still burning ships. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds.